welcome back to Millennial Ag Podcast, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valine Cawhorn and Catherine Longspeech. Listeners, welcome back to episode 146, I believe it is. Um, and this week is our final um, episode in the Ag Labor series. Um, and so we're bringing all our guests back on and we'd encourage you, if this is where you're jumping in, to go back and listen to those last four episodes. Um, but to start off, we're going to go around and just have each of our guests introduce themselves again um, and a little bit about um, their operation or or their position in um, the association. So Rick, do you want to start with, with who you are, please? Sure. I'm Rick Narabout. I'm the executive with Idaho Dairymen's Association, and we're an association of dairy farmers in the state of Idaho, and we do policy work on, on behalf of Idaho's dairy farm families. Perfect. Thank you, Rick, for joining us. Uh, Calvin? Hi, my name is Calvin Beasley. Uh, I'm a fruit and vegetable grower in central Indiana. Um, we also operate an agritourism operation, and then we have a retail market on site as well. Um, about 90% of what we grow is sold direct to the public on our farm. Awesome. Thanks, Calvin. And then Eric. Yep, Eric. Um, I am a custom heifer grower. Um, basically take Midwest, East Coast heifers, ship them out West and feed them and breed them. Bed, <laughs> breakfast, for, bed and breakfast for heifers. <laughs> It's a great way to put it. So listeners, uh, there you have three out of the four guests we've had on our series. We're waiting on one more, but we're going to roll ahead because we do have a great lineup here. And as Valine said, this is the last of our series um, on ag labor. And first off, before we jump in, we would like to thank you because this has been the series, the episodes that we have had the most feedback on that you've liked the most, that have been shared and rated the most. We can't thank you enough for that. We also need to thank our guests for that because they have been the ones who have really driven where this series has gone and um, brought home the points that Valley and I have been thinking about and kicking around since before we started this series. So this episode is a roundtable. It is focused on um, all of the issues that our guests have brought to the table, and they are going to lead us down some thought patterns of where they think we can go from here. We know that solutions will be an entirely different ball of wax. It takes a lot of work, a lot of maneuvering to get to a final solution, but what we're asking from our guests today and what we know they will bring to us is pathways that we can take to get to those solutions. So sit down, buckle in, and here we go. Rick, we're going to start with you. You, in your episode, um, you mentioned, you said, you stated quite blatantly that Idaho Dairymen's has completely changed their approach to talking about the immigration debate and issues. Can you tell us why you changed your approach, where you started, where you are now, and um, where you want to head with that approach. Sure. So we've been working on immigration reform for over a decade now, and we used to be pretty, pretty reticent to be completely transparent as to the percentage of our workforce that was here without status. And you know, we've we've come to realize that if we don't provide the public with a clear picture of how dependent we are in agriculture and other economic sectors on a workforce that doesn't have status, there's never going to be the impetus to fix the problem if they think it's much smaller than what it really is. And in agriculture, if you combine all the sectors, you know, Department of Labor statistics will tell you that you're going to have about half of the ag workforce at the farm level is going to be in America without status. And so one of the talking points we like to use, especially if we're talking to a group of people over a meal, is to envision that half of that meal is brought to them without, you know, from a worker without status and to help them really see and visualize the size and the scope of the problem. For us in dairy, our percentages are much higher. We're, we're a year-round employer. We don't have access to the H-2A program. And so, you know, in Idaho, we have a 90% of our workforce at the farm level is, is going to be foreign-born. 
And without a visa program, that's going to, you know, you can, you can do the math to try and figure out if we have 90% of our workforce coming to us from another country and we don't have a visa program, it doesn't take a degree in mathematics to know that we're dealing with a very high percentage of our workforce that's here without status. And so we openly share that anymore. I, I testified before our House Ag committees in the Idaho legislature earlier this week and shared those very same stats. So we're, we're pretty open about it anymore and just trying to raise awareness that we can't feed ourselves in America without an undocumented workforce at this point. So why don't we start to figure out how to you know, provide them a pathway and a legal process that they're willing to follow and that you know, we all would prefer as opposed to continuing forward with the status quo? I think, and I, I said this too on the on your episode, but just thank you for bringing that to light and starting that conversation. Um, I guess, Eric, what are your thoughts around around that? Um, those those statistics and some of the the solutions maybe you guys have seen or you guys have started to kick around. Yeah, I'm I'm actually surprised to hear fifty percent. That seems like a really low number to me. Um, but if I was going to guess and I didn't know any of those stats, so, um, I mean, it's just that it's, we can either just keep pretending like it doesn't exist or we can just, I like exactly what Rick said was we can just accept the fact that it is what it is and we need to fix it. That's pretty simple. I mean, he, he said it all there. Well, and on that 50% stat, Eric, those are, so Department of Labor goes around and does an ag labor uh, survey every year. So that's the percentage of the workforce that's brave enough to tell a federal worker that they're here without status. So we know that that's understated. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not sure if I was in their shoes, I'd be brave enough to tell that statistician, yeah, I'm here without status. and. <laughs> Please don't do anything about that. Right. Well, Calvin, your situation is a little bit different because you utilize um, H-2A workers. What, I guess, what's your your perspective on what Rick has described? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with the, you know, the idea of transparency. Um, and I think that's definitely an approach that we're taking um, with you know, people in our community and our customer base. Um with specialty crops, you know, what's different about our operation is that there is no demand for year-round employment. I mean, if you're talking about an apple orchard, you might need 10% of your harvest crew um, to stay through the winter to prune and things like that. So specialty crops, you're always going to have seasonal labor. Um, so H2A, is it's a great fit for us. Um, the quality of the worker is great. Um, the work that gets done is good. Um, the guys are conscientious. It's been a great source of labor for us. The problem that we have is the cost um, and the fact that it's such a moving benchmark for us. Um, we can't seem to settle into um, what to expect year to year. Um, and for a lot of larger producers who are dependent on wholesale markets, their margins are already so slim. Um, and then they're finding out you know, in, in December, a lot of times, uh, what kind of costs they're going to be looking at for the following year for their labor. And it's not just the wage that they're being paid. It's, it's the transportation. Um, it's the processing fees. Many of us are hiring third parties because the government has made the process so incredibly complicated. Um, the amount of paperwork that has to be submitted in a timely manner and has to go to the right place. Um, you know, you have to provide transportation for those guys. Um, and, you know, for us being in an area that is prone to um, crop loss due to climate factors, there's a substantial amount of risk for us getting involved in H2A. And I touched on this on my episode because, you know, when you have an H2A worker come, you're guaranteeing them a portion of that entire contract. And so they're here on site um, in the springtime. And there's a possibility that we could have a, a freeze um, and, or a hail event and lose our crop and then not have the need for that labor. Um, so that's a significant risk, too, that ultimately makes it more expensive. So it, it's a good program for us as far as getting the workers to the farm. Um, but the rising costs and the lack of a plan going into the future um, is causing a lot of people a lot of concern. So what. You know, you you touch on the H2A program, which we had. 
we had kind of talked about the immigration reform and adding a visa program for the dairy or the, I would say the year round, not necessarily just the dairy, but the year round. Um, and I guess how, so back to you, Calvin, how many, are you getting the same, same employees every year? Are they new employees? Um, and then how are you also short on employees? So how can like, when we talk about immigration reform and we talk about these big issues around, around that, when we head to Congress say to talk about this, how, how does it also affect you um, and the H2A program specifically? Yeah. So for us, um, and, and I, I will try, you know, I'm a relatively small producer, but I'll try to speak a little bit to the larger, the, the bigger guys that I know, especially in Northern Indiana and Michigan. Um, the goal is always to bring the same guys back. That's what we've done. Um, so we've had the same group of guys. We'll be going into our third year now doing H2A. We are doing a second contract this year and they're guys that are from the same hometown as the guys that we've had. So that helps tremendously. Um, they kind of already know each other. Three of my guys had already worked together before. Um, and I will say that that's, you know, you do, you do have a, a movement of H2A contractors that's becoming a, a bigger player now in the specialty crop sphere. Um, but for people who are actually directly hiring H2A guys, they're always trying to bring the same guys back. And then they're trying to have their existing guys refer their new workers. Um, and I would say that, on average, you are probably talking about like a 90 to 95% success rate, meaning that the guys stay on site, complete their contract um, without having any problems. Um, and I will say just, you know, relative to um, other employees, whether they are um, U.S. citizens or other migrant workers who may or may not be documented, um, we've had no problems with their H2A guys. I mean, they they're very professional. They come in, they want to work, they'll work as much as you ask them to. Um, so it's been a very positive experience. Um, but as far as like what we would like to see in terms of reform, it, I would just say a simplification of the process. Um, there's, there's so many things that change year to year that as a, as a grower, um, I can't even keep track of. So I, I don't even know the specifics in and out. I mean, that's why we go through a third party because they stay abreast of those things. Um, but obviously I have to pay them to do that. So it seems like a lot of unnecessary complexities. And obviously, it, you know, the government stances that they're doing those things to protect native workers. Right. And that's why we have an AEWR wage. Um, they're trying to make sure that these migrants are not coming up and, and taking um, native workers jobs, which <clears throat> anybody who works in agriculture understands that this is not the case. Right. I mean, I mean, Native people don't want these jobs. They don't. I mean, I've seen it my whole life growing up around this business. It's, you know, we talked about this a lot. It's really difficult, um, tedious, repetitive work. Um, and it takes a, a certain mindset to excel in it. And, and when we hire Native people or local people to come in, a lot of people think they want to do it, right? You know, they think, oh, that looks so much fun. Well, after a day, they're done. And it, and it doesn't matter what you pay them because they're going to choose to do something else. Um, and that goes back to the transparency thing is that instead of kind of sweeping it under the rug that, you know, migrant workers are the ones planting, cultivating and harvesting all of our crops. We, we want to show our customers what these guys are doing because it's incredible. I mean, not everybody can do the things that they're doing and we want people to appreciate it, which my hope is that if we're able to do that, um, people will, you know, view migrant workers and agriculture in a more positive light than they traditionally do. And we have to get away from the mindset of, oh, they're they're cheap. They're coming up here because they're cheap and the business is saving all this money. I mean, we're not. By the time you factor in their housing and all the processing fees, they cost a lot more than what a what a native worker um, would cost us for an entry level position. So. Calvin, that that brings up something that each of you has said, um, and I've been impressed that each of you has said it. And I really appreciate it. You've all said that um, a mindset shift is needed on how how immigrant workers and undocumented immigrant workers are perceived because they they do this work. That, I mean, even documented immigrants come come with a lot of a lot of effort, a lot more cost, just like you described. And I would like to hear from each of you that mindset shift needs to happen. 
how is it going to happen? I mean, cultural change is a really, really hard thing to do. And you know how embedded this kind of a, a negative mindset is, particularly in rural America, which is unfortunate. But I think that's another truth that needs to be addressed. Um, anybody jump in here. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that softball. <laughs> <laughs> Whack it out of the park. I know you can, Rick. <laughs> Honestly, I, I don't, I don't have a great answer for that because if, if logic prevailed, we would have solved the immigration reform issue by now. I mean, it, it from a logical standpoint, it makes all the sense in the world, but the emotions that get interjected into the conversation completely change how it's perceived and we haven't figured out how to how to separate the emotion from the logic in this conversation. I mean, a, a great example is we're trying to run legislation in Idaho right now to provide driver's licenses to our workers that are here without status. And even though every metric that you would want to see improved, because there's 19 states and regions that have already done this, and it is, if you look at those 19 states and regions, the rate of uninsured drivers goes down. So you have more insured drivers on the road. The severity of accidents is less. The number of hit and runs is less. The number of individuals fleeing police is less. So all these metrics go in the right way, yet we can't get Idaho Republicans to look at that and say, you know what, this makes sense for my community because I'm going to create a safer community for all my constituents. So yeah, even though this is a little bit uncomfortable because I'm, I'm gonna provide a driver's license to somebody that's here without status, the, the good outweighs the bad in this. We can't get to that point. And, and that's, that's immigration reform in a nutshell. I mean, th this conversation, whether you're having it at a state level for something like that or at a federal level, trying to get politicians to, to realize We've got to accept imperfection. You know, we're, we're not going to come up with a perfect solution for border security and for, you know, visa programs. And we're not going to make everybody 100% happy. But if everybody's willing to compromise a little bit and accept imperfection, we can probably come to a solution that's going to work for more people than it, than it doesn't work for. And that's, that's really what good solutions in democracy look like. Rick, can you say that louder for the people in back? I think that <laughs> I said everything, not just immigration reform. Um, yeah, I think the first step in uh, fixing a problem is accepting that there is one. I heard that <laughs> one time, and that's like all of this. It's like we can keep. I mean, Republican, Democrat, whatever you want to do. I, I'm with Rick about. And it's, we're not taking away native jobs, period. Um, we can argue, I think I said this on mine, we can argue all day long about a border wall and all of those problems, which I agree we've got to stop the flow or at least know who's coming and going. Um, but uh, getting politicians, I don't, I don't understand it. I want to choke them all. It's just like, it's just <laughs> that hard. It's easy. Um, and, and I say that I, I was just at the Capitol a couple of weeks ago getting confirmed for the position. And it's just like, you guys are nuts. It's just, this is so simple to me. It's sickening. So to comment, just to well, this conversation, okay. we have uh, Dan Lotspeech has been able to join us from Lotspeech Family Farms. He was one of our guests as well. So welcome, Dan, and he'll be he'll be jumping into the conversation from now too. Um, back to you, Val. Okay. Thanks, Catherine, for for getting Dan in there. I was just going to say, Catherine and I ran across to an agriculture advocate talking about deportation and how we need to deport them all and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not going to say his name, but it really got us frustrated because it's like, one, you're in agriculture. 
And two, do you, if you really don't understand who feeds you, then like this is in our backyard and people are just ignorant to it. Um, and then the amount of positive comments that were fleeing through it. And maybe it was my own ignorance on how rude people can truly be too. Um, but how, how we've taken the humanization too out of, out of our neighbors. Like I just get, I get so frustrated and so worked up about it. Um, because we're talking humans that are, that want to be here, that are our neighbors and our friends, and that we're just, just treating them like they're a cow. And it just, Oh, it makes me so mad. So I'm <laughs> some places the cows are treated better, honestly. And it's, uh, that's sad. It's horribly sad. And, um, I had a train of thought there to go there with something, but, Oh, I know what it was and, and not to delve too far off into politics, but I was having a debate, um, within the first couple of years of Trump getting elected in uh, 2016 and, they kept saying he's a racist, he's a racist. And I kept saying, show me, show me what he's done or said or anything. And they, and this person looked at me and just said, I don't believe he's a racist. I think he knows how to stir up the racist uh, sediment in this country. And then I get into it. I'm in an area that, that migrant work has been part of the culture for eternity. I mean, it was not that long ago that they just came and went across borders however they felt like daily or you know they'd come up work for a month and then go home and it wasn't a big deal so my area accepts it i think more than a lot but i did um kind of take take a deep look and there is i think a lot <laughs> i hate to say this out loud but i think a lot of the attitudes about it there is some racist tendencies there i don't want to call people straight up racist but there is and that's a lot of the problem i do i have kind of accepted that i don't know if anyone else agrees with that at all but um, that's i have kind of accepted eric I'm, I'm glad you brought that up and i mean more than listening to me blather on i want to hear what everybody else has to say but i am glad that you brought that up because when the black lives matter movement started or when it came to the forefront valine and i did an episode on racism it was incredibly uncomfortable for us because we like to think that you know we're nice good people who um who don't have any of those tendencies and i mean after after that episode we took a look at ourselves and said well turns out we do and everybody does it's just the way it is it's human nature um, but I think that you are exactly right that Trump has stirred up. I mean, Trump, you know, Trump is a symptom of the problem and the outcome of the symptoms. You know, he's not the only problem, but he has very well stirred up that pot. And it has, I don't know if it's um, increased the level of that sentiment, but it's certainly made it more acceptable um, to voice those opinions in public. And that has trickled over. I mean, it has washed over into the immigration debate. And like Val said, I mean, it was nice of her to say that we were frustrated with that post that we saw. It's an agriculture influencer who has been around for many, many years, preaching the good, the good word about um, about agriculture and all the good things that we have to offer. And that came out. And like I said, Val was nice about it. I was pissed off. I sent it to Valine, and I did not have things to say. And that's that's what we're combating here. And I mean. But what do we do about that? Like I said, that's a cultural shift. Where do we get there from here? And even if we can't completely eradicate it, of course we won't. But how do we get past it to get to a solution that is humane, that is effective, that's efficient, that can move everybody on in the right direction? Calvin and Rick, you look like you have things to say, and I know Dan has things to say. <laughs> can I, I just want to say real quick, personally, what I've done about it is I can't even count. I don't. I don't even try to count how many times I'm asked how many insert racist statements do you have working for you? And I shrug my shoulders and say, as far as I know, they're all documented and they're just guys. They're just men. I don't know who you're talking about, but that's not who I have working for me. And I don't, I mean, I just have good people that just want an honest wage and, and an honest day's work. 
Yeah, I can touch on, you know, we've had situations, we do a lot on social media for our farm. And in the past, there's been times that we'll, we'll post a picture of the guys picking, or maybe they're on the packing line. And we've actually had comments, people, you know, not even necessarily say anything derogatory about the fact that they're Mexican, but just pointing out the fact, you know, not a white person, not a white person on that picking crew or all the, it's only Mexicans doing work for you. And, and just things that are really completely irrelevant to what we're trying to showcase in the post, you know, which is we're trying to market a product and then, and hopefully educate people on some production methods and things like that. Um, and that's really upsetting because uh, early on that can make you feel like you shouldn't show them in the post, you know? Um, and I think a lot of us, sometimes we see um, large agriculture marketing campaigns. Um, I'm going to, maybe I shouldn't just want to throw a company under the bus a little bit. And that's the peach truck. Um, and I've seen the peach truck will do advertisements where they show like a 20 something white couple in a peach orchard, picking peaches into half bushel baskets and then putting them into like a 1960s truck. That's not happening. There's no commercial peach operation in the country where that's what that looks like. Um, so that, that upsets me because that's now kind of feeding into the biases and the narrative that we have about what production looks like. So then when you have an operation that's showcasing something that's accurate, um, people might be more inclined to say something negative. Um, and I think, you know, how to combat it, uh, it's really hard. I mean, you have, you have sentiments that are decades old, generations old. Um, the only thing that I can think of to do in my tiny little part of the world is, is to keep showing that, to keep showing what we're doing and to keep showing how hard those guys are working and to try to explain it to people. Um, and the people that are having an open mind and are, are, you know, open to thinking differently about things and learning, they will. And the people that don't, you're probably not going to change their mind anyway. Um, and it's a tough thing, you know, because it's a problem that's been around a lot longer than any of us have and a lot longer than we've been thinking about it. Yeah, Kelvin, it's funny you you brought up uh, social media because I was kind of thinking about that myself. And I wonder, it, it, it's hard to imagine this getting a whole lot better with with this continued reliance on social media that we have to do our marketing to, because in, you know, on Twitter, on Facebook, when you're just in the comments section, it's far easier to just fall back on a, on an easy stereotype. Um, you know, whatever hot button issue, you know, is going to get a lot of reaction, uh, than it is to have a nuanced discussion about any of this. It, it really seems like longer form conversations, the kind you these days you primarily have with people when you're face to face talking to each other are, are really the way that you get around a lot of the the stereotypes and the the, the sort of easy things that uh, that that get thrown out there and it it is kind of hard to envision that taking forefront um, in American society you know well social media as it stands right now remains such a, a big influence on all of our lives. So going back to whatever influencer you're referring to and, and their desire to see our workforce deported. So early on in the Trump administration, we were really nervous. You know, you, you, we were hearing the rhetoric come out of the White House, had no idea you know, how that was going to play out. And one of our attorneys had developed a relationship with the lead ICE investigator in Idaho and convinced us to hold a meeting with him and our board leadership and felt like we were taking a tremendous risk, but we're like, all right, we'll take the meeting. And the gentleman walked into the room, he was the last one to arrive to the meeting, walked in the room, saw he had a group of dairy producers there and just straight face says, glad you guys are here. The black helicopters just took off because you're meeting with me. They're not going to land on your dairy. Just stone <laughs> cold straight faced. <laughs> and, he, and he sat there straight faced for about 10 seconds and he starts busting up loud. He's like, no, I'm just messing with you. We're not doing that. <laughs> and sat down to have really a very productive conversation. And this comes back to us starting to realize that, 
you know, it's, it's probably pretty safe to be open about the legal status of our workforce because he proceeded to share. He says, Hey, trust me. I know, I know that you're very dependent on an undocumented workforce. I see the I-9 audits that are conducted by my agency. I know the dairy industry and landscaping. And he just named all the other industries that look just like our industry in our dependence on a workforce that's here without status. And he says, if, if my sole goal was to try and round up every worker that's here without status, I'd never make it out of my subdivision in the morning because I live in a new subdivision that I have to stop at every construction site before I got out of the, out of the entrance. <laughs> and so it was, it was a very refreshing conversation in that, you know, he was, he was being open with us that there really aren't secrets and the federal government knows who's employing undocumented workers. They know what economic sectors are, are dependent on this workforce. And so for us, that was, you know, one more step forward and okay, we can, we can share more about the legal status of our workforce. And one of our takeaways from the Trump administration is, hey, if we can make it through the Trump administration without mass deportations, what there's not a there's not a whole lot of risk that our workforce are going to be deported. You know, the individuals that are involved in criminal activity, yeah, they're going to be targeted. But the rank and file individuals that are just here trying to make a living and trying to figure out how to pursue the American dream they're fairly safe in our communities from, from our experience. And, and you, do have, you do have differences. The other thing we've realized is each region of ICE is given a fair amount of autonomy in how they operate. And we have a fairly agreeable you know, region here in, in South Central Idaho, but you know, there's other regions around the country that aren't that agreeable. So I, I just... <laughs> I just look at it and say, okay, you know, agriculture and employers that are relied on this workforce, we really have found a creative solution, you know, between the workers and ourselves, we figured out how to coexist and how to, you know, fit within the employment laws. We all know that we pay social security and, and Medicare on social security numbers that'll never be collected on. The Social Security Administration knows that the Trump administration issued 600,000 no match letters to employ identifying individuals that, you know, they're paying in on numbers that the name doesn't match. So there's really a lot fewer secrets in all of this than what people realize. And, you know, those individuals that think that we're going to pack them up and send them home are just living in a fantasy. That's never going to happen. It would decimate our economy. And the politicians know that much to know that they can't do that. So they can continue to live in that fantasy, but it's just not, it's just never going to come to fruition. Rick, you just said something about the social security and I'm going to, uh, Catherine and they know I can get a little tinfoil hat wearing once in a while, but those words have come out of my mouth. I've said, Hey, we're most, I think, pretty much everybody here is a millennial and I've accepted, I will never see social security. I mean, we know the thing's going to be broke. The politicians know that. And they also don't think for a second that the congressmen and all them in the finance committee haven't seen a number that says how many dollars illegal workers put towards social security and all that is, I think we would all be astonished at how much money they dump into a system, they're never going to see a penny out of ever. And I've said, who's, who's getting the shaft here? I mean, they're paying a lot of money into that. At least I'm paying in and I'll never get my money either, but there's a hope. <laughs> well, and I think I read, we, we giggle about it because it's the truth. And like going back to the Trump administration, the reason you know, I just had an aha moment. The reason we didn't have mass deportation while he was is because he knew the economic value that they bring. And he's about the money. Like, say what you want about him. He's a businessman and he he's put the pencil to it and realized how how valuable 
our um, migrant workers are to it. So that, I mean, that was just my aha moment, Rick, from, from what you brought too about how one, how valuable, but that, that our government and our president also realize that too. And, and it's going back to working with our local, our local agencies, even if they're federal, federally, federally employed, they're the ones that are, that are regulating, regulating and, and enforcing these laws too. And so it's, it's working with them on a continuous basis and building those relationships of trust to keep, to keep doing what we're doing with a broken system. I, I'm my argument all the time. And I feel like we've been bashing on Trump a little bit here. It's kind of funny, but, uh, um, I said many times that man knows who cleans his hotels. That man knows who does the landscaping at his golf courses. He is not stupid. Yeah. And I mean, just so we spread around the bashing, the Obama administration deported <laughs> far more people than the Trump administration. ever. Did. And the I-9 audits were through yes. the roof during the Obama administration. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, our perspective is there's plenty of blame to go around. It doesn't matter which political yeah. party you want to point the finger Absolutely. at. They both they both bear blame in this in this conversation because they both failed. They both had opportunities where they controlled both chambers of commerce and the White House have said in, in campaigning that they would solve the problem and done nothing about it when they had the opportunity. Calvin, yep. you've been kind of quiet. What's your thoughts on all this? <laughs> I mean, my my stance on on the politics is, you know. I try to have, I guess, a more of a micro level view on it because I try to control the things that are right in front of me and what I can control with my own business. Um, and again, I'll reiterate, you know, we're a relatively small producer, um, which is an advantage in this type of situation because we have a captive audience that we're able to interact with for the most part. And, and that's kind of what my approach is, because for me, waiting on political change, as desirable as it may be, um, just as these guys have been discussing, if it was going to happen, if there was an easy solution, it would have happened by now. Um, and the problem is, is that you can look at the economic values of everything all that you want, but you cannot get a lot of constituents to, to embrace the change because they don't have a grasp on it because they're holding on to sentiments and beliefs that are no longer accurate, but are well ingrained in the populace. So that's, you know, that's all I can really say is that for me, I just try to interact with the people that I can. Um, I think what Dan said about engaging in long form conversations is great because social media is tough. Um, I'll even add that on social media, we try to make our posts more long form in nature. We try to write paragraphs instead of sentences. Um, we try to introduce the workers by name and talk about how long they've been with us and what are their favorite things to do on the farm. And in a way, it's sad to use this verbiage, but we try to humanize them a little bit more, um, you know, because they're, you know, they're, they're my friends, right? I mean, I spend a lot, I spend more time with them than I do a lot of family members. Um, but most people, you know, they don't see it that way. Um, so that's, and this is what I'm all, I'm all about doing what you can to showcase your business, your practices, um, find ways to engage people because for too long, um, farmers have been pretty bad at that. Um, I still know so many produce growers that they sell everything that they sell, grow, goes to a packing house, to a marketing cooperative, um, and they have no interaction with the public ever. And they want it to be that way, but I don't think that's the best way to, to change people's way of thinking. So I just want everyone to know here, listeners, you can't see this Zoom call. Um, Everyone here is nodding their heads. Everyone is agreeing. Everything that everyone is saying is the truth from the economic implications to the personal implications. You spend more time with the people you work with who in this case are undocumented or documented immigrants. They're immigrants nonetheless. They're our friends. They are practically our family. Um, spend so much time with them. You get to know them so well. This is a very, very personal issue. And I, I just want our listeners to know that of what we're seeing right here. And I, I, I mean, someone jump in after what Calvin said right there, because I think there's some really great points there. Um, but I just wanted to make sure that you guys knew that while you're listening to this episode. 
Yeah, I suppose one of the things I'm thinking about as uh, as as I listen to this is I wonder if you know some of the transition we see of more operations um, going to at least partial uh, direct to consumer sales. You know, expanding into that area. I wonder if that does give more opportunity um, because you know as I'm sitting here thinking, sort of ticking off ideas in my head. Um, of of ways you could get more people in to see this picture, you know, the, there's some that that just aren't going to happen, right? Uh, we're not going to get um, more people involved in the actual doing the labor of the farming space, right? Um, we kind of see the trends. It's it's pretty dang unlikely that all of a sudden we're going to be able to get even five or ten percent of the population back into farming. Um, so that's not going to happen. Uh, and, and yeah, kind of going through all these others, but, but that's one positive that I potentially see there, um, as, as a potential way to really engage more people, um, more of the, the voting populace, I guess, if we're thinking about ultimately the political changes that need to happen, um, to, to drive some of these solutions. Um, maybe that's a good way, you know, one of the, one of the positive trends that's occurring in agriculture right now toward sort of making that happen, right? The more farms that are, that are out there engaging directly with their customers, the more customers are going to be um, exposed to some of those agricultural realities. I, I completely agree with that. That's something that I talk to a lot of other growers in our area about. Um, even if you're not gonna actually market your product directly, you can still interact with people. You can, you know, you can do YouTube videos, you can have an Instagram page. And, and I've, we used to really just kind of, we'd post a picture of the finished product. So like, you know, for us, predominantly apples, we take a picture of the apples in the bin. They look really pretty. Here they are. They're ready for you to come by. Um, and that was kind of the whole story. And we were always hesitant to show the rest of the process, you know, especially when we get into pesticide use. So for us being in produce, that's the big one. Um, you know, spraying, using the synthetic fertilizers, things like that. We, we didn't want to showcase that type of thing, but we've learned in recent years that if we talk about those things um, and we write, you know, eloquent um, explanations to go with them, to go with the videos or go with the pictures that people actually respond really well to it. Most people are really amazed at the level of planning and thought and execution that has to go into raising a crop. Um, and it doesn't really matter what part of agriculture you're talking about. Um, as Americans, we just talked about how, you know, people are not involved in farming anymore. People take stuff for granted, you know, I mean, never before in human history have you had access to so many different types of food without having to do anything or even think about the process. Um, so we had to kind of get over that fear of opening ourselves up, opening our operation up. Um, and it's been really positive. And like when, when we look at our social media metrics, those posts are always our best performing posts. We can post a picture about something you can buy in the market and it, it's a dud. It doesn't do that well at all. We can post a picture about something going on out in the orchard. That's an agricultural practice. And it's really, really well received. Um, you know, this is just a, a, a sidebar, but it was a funny instance that happened to me at a conference I was at this week. Um, and I'm not going to name any names, but there was a discussion going on about a new apple variety that's recently come on the market. This apple variety, it's Evercrisp. It's exceptionally a good eating apple, um, but it's not attractive. It's kind of an ugly apple um, and it's a little bit difficult to grow. And there was um, some people are upset because the wholesale market price is not what we were kind of led to believe it would be. It's not gained a lot of traction. Um, the reason it hasn't gained traction is because mostly of its appearance, um, wholesale buyers and grocery chains have been slow to want that apple to, to be on their floor. Um, and a grower was asked, uh, point blank, you know, he's on a panel, um, you know, well, what, what do we do about this? And his response was, well, I'm not a marketer, so that's not my problem. <laughs> and I thought that was amazing because uh, you should be a marketer. Um, your financial well-being is tied to marketing that product or marketing your farm story. Um, and it honestly, I mean, most of us are on social media for hours a day anyway, so it doesn't really take that much effort um, to showcase a little bit of that side of your farm. False. I put a timer on my phone like I'm a child 
just yesterday for social media because it was shocking me how much time I was spending on that. And then yesterday I threw a temper tantrum like a little kid when it locked me out. <laughs> Sidebar, sorry. <laughs> you know, they do make apps you can give your wife access to where she can control it and then turn your she can turn your social media apps off. But I'm a bachelor. Then I just sit at home <laughs> watching TikTok all night long until midnight, and then I wonder why I'm so tired the next day. Eric, your bachelorhood is a problem. We're going to have to talk about a whole nother episode. So, oh, yeah. there's the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> I just I tell mean, people I'm a professional bachelor. I got a cleaning lady. I've got I've got it set. I'm good. She does my laundry. <laughs> it's pathetic. <laughs> Sounds like you're a lot better off than the rest of us, or at least in my house. <laughs> anyway, back to Calvin's point. I mean, what Calvin just drove home for me was that uh, he humanized, and unfortunately, you're right. That's a that's a sad word that we have to use about humans. Um, you're humanizing what your day to day operations look like. Uh, just just from our own perspective, Valerie and I have found that. You know, we can post stats all day long and facts and blah, blah, blah and millennial ag. And the stuff that gets the most likes is the personal stuff. And that, I mean, the, I don't know. It's a sad, sad insight into social media algorithms, I suppose, on what gets liked and what doesn't. But but it really shows where people's true interest is. And maybe that's a good, um, oh, I don't know, comparison to need to crying all of the dehumanization that is out there amongst the amongst uh the american american society native society um and just an observation i have from what from what calvin just said but be interested to hear hear what the rest of our panel has to say about that Looks like everybody here is giving that some some food for thought. Um, <laughs> go ahead, Rick. <laughs> well, I was going to say I'm the I'm the old hair in the group. I'm a Gen Xer, not a millennial. So, <laughs> can I take a I pass like to on say I'm right on the line though. I'm 82. I'm right there. <laughs> See, I, I snuck into the 70s. I'm 79. So. <laughs> Either way, I mean, we're all pretty close. We we are. We run the spectrum of the very end of Gen X, just to keep you happy, Rick, and um, up to up to the end of of the millennials. Valine's the youngest of us, so we'll pin it all on her. <laughs> just kidding, but no, I I don't know. Just to think about that, do you guys think that within our generation, are these attitudes changing, um, or you know, is it regional? Is it rural versus urban? political divides, where, where is this change going to come from? To bring it back to our original point, where is this change going to come from? I hate to say it. Maybe I don't hate to say it. I hate to say it out loud. It's not coming from baby boomers. Oh, <laughs> oh God, no. Um, I don't know. I, I think it does. I think some attitudes start changing. Um, as the Gen Xers, the millennials start moving into this. And, and we already are making a lot of the decisions. It's a lot of the, but we can also argue that's a lot of the craziness that some of us are shaking our heads and going, well, what are we talking about here? What's happened? But um, like in my area, no, I don't see a lot of change. I don't think in my entire life it's changed. Like I said, it's pretty accepted here, honestly. I mean, it, it really is. It just, it's just been part of the culture for, hundred plus years so it's just not that big a deal but so I can't speak for the urban areas and things like that but we also know that's where the votes are going to have to come from right well Rick would probably have a, a much better grasp on this than than I would it's been a while since I tried looking at any numbers but I think one of the parts that's most frustrating is if you look at opinion poll numbers and things like that uh, it, it does seem like the the vast majority, you know, kind of an, an overwhelming majority of the American public supports a lot of uh, a lot of the changes that we would like to see in this respect. 
Um, and yet, I don't know, the, the people that, that drag their feet and sort of uh, shout the, the loudest about this seem to have the most sway over the politicians um, and, and the, the way that the people in Congress are actually voting. So it's tough to, I don't know, it's, it's, I think that's one of the things that, that tends to be the most frustrating from my perspective. Um, you know, I guess one of the numbers I was, I was talking about specifically, I think it's, it's supporting a path to legalization for a lot of the uh, illegal immigrant population in the United States. And the last time I looked at opinion poll numbers on those, again, it was overwhelmingly the public was in support of that. Um, and yet, I don't know, there are a lot of areas like that in our politics right now where the, the public, the vast majority of the public wants something and Congress is happy to pretend that that is not a thing. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. The, the polling, you know, on immigration issues shows that the general populace would want to see some sort of reform, you know, just they're looking for logical solutions and really our thin majorities in either party in Congress have been problematic. You, the, the speaker vote is a great example of, of seeing that play out in broad daylight where you had a handful of individuals completely hijack that process and extract what they wanted for political power to be able to be disruptive for the next two years in the House. And, and that's because we had a thin majority and of, of four or five Republicans as opposed to having some cushion there where those few extreme voices wouldn't have that same power otherwise. And, and, and that's, that's been largely where we're seeing the disruption is because we don't have, you know, you've got thin majorities in both chambers. You've got to try and find, you know, 10 Republicans to go along with, you know, the 50 Democrats on anything going through the Senate and trying to find 10 Republicans to break rank and go along with Democrats <laughs> is, is a really tall order because they get couched then as as a rhino or you know disloyal to the party or to the agenda and and so that's where we've seen politically a lot of this disruption this this sort of makes me uh desperately want to jump in with the with comparisons to uh to rome as i'm sure Catherine uh, is aware <laughs> of that. but i'm gonna i'm gonna hold back because it's not actually helpful uh in the conversation we're having but, and I, I do think as Americans, we forget that democracy is supposed to be messy. It, it was not set up as a quick and efficient process of governance. It was set up to be messy, to require the deliberation and the debate and the compromise. We just are going through a period of time right now where we've forgotten about the compromise piece. We've got the messy piece down. I mean, we got that space. We figured out how to be messy politically. But the compromise piece right now is a four-letter word if you're a, a, a politician in Congress. And, and I think we get back to it. I just, you know, sometimes you've got to screw up for a while before you figure out what you're doing is, is the wrong thing and, and isn't getting you the results you want before you figure out you got to change your approach. And, and we seem to be somewhere in that spectrum of we're screwing up for a while here to figure out that, you know, how we're going about this isn't getting us the results we want. Well, I hate to say it, but this is probably a good stopping place for this particular episode. Um, I, I have a couple statements to make at the end, but I'll let, I'll let Val go first. Well, I was going to, um, we appreciate again, all of you guys joining us. And before we sign off, I would like to, if you each had a magic wand, um, what would you do to change this issue? I know there's a lot, a lot to unfold and a lot of moving pieces, but if you could, if you could take a magic wand and fix the ag labor issue, either on your facility or in, in agriculture or the industry you work in as a whole, what would you do? Um, we'll start with Eric. I'll just go down the line on my screen. So Eric, you're first. 
really want to do that? Okay. Um, if I had a magic wand and I, I could fix it right now, it would be um, a wall, whatever it takes, stop, control the border. Um, and then sit down and have a conversation and um, come up with a plan, not just hand over amnesty. Not, we wouldn't do that, but then we would um, come up with some program, some kind of plan to document the ones that are here and allow them to breathe, allow them to drive down the road, not worry about getting pulled over by the police and getting deported. And then their family's poor and broken because their kids are U.S. citizens. But yeah, it'd be that. It'd fix, fix the border and then um, get the ones that are here documented. Awesome. What about you, Calvin? So my thing would be, you know, an amendment to the H-2A program that would allow the workers who return to the same business year after year um, to have basically a fast track to be able to stay um, in that location permanently. Um, that's something that I would like to see. We've had the same guys year after year. I know they have families and kids back at home um, and they're here for 10 months out of the year, you know, and that's not that's not a very good quality of life. So I would like to see a way for them to be able to, you know, after several years of showing that they are good intention, that they want to be there, want to be working at the same place to be able to, to move here permanently and, and to bring their families. That's very cool. Dan. Uh, so I'm going to go out in left field and say, uh, if, if, if I'm going magic wand here, um, double food prices, because, you know, or at least farm prices. There's a hundred reasons why that's a why that's a terrible idea, and that would cause way more problems than it would solve. But dang, it would be really nice to be able to uh, to to pay people, you know, a wage that would be competitive with any other line of work, and uh, and and to have a little financial breathing room to uh, you know make all the changes that you wanted to on the farm. Um, so there, there's a terrible idea for you. <laughs> I'm not sure there's a, there's a farmer who would disagree on, on the logic or the intent behind that idea, Dan. <laughs> How about leave corn where it's at and hey, maybe get it down about a hundred bucks. Okay, there you go. Yeah, and right. double milk. <laughs> all right. All right. There you go. <laughs> I think we've just figured out our next round table with everybody is food <laughs> prices here. <laughs> Alrighty, and then we'll round it out with Rick. So if you're giving me a magic wand, I'm going back to 2013 and the Senate passed Senate Bill 744, which was a comprehensive immigration package that was all sectors of the economy, not just agriculture. And Speaker Boehner had the votes to pass it, but he didn't have a majority of the Republicans that was in favor of it, so he failed to take it up. If you're giving me a magic wand, I'm going back there to figure out how to get Boehner to take that bill up and pass it, because then this conversation isn't happening because we would have had a comprehensive package passed in 2013. Very good. Down, Rick. That's just disappointing <laughs> here. <laughs> it's the Haskett rule. If you don't have a majority of the majority, you don't take a bill to the floor for a vote. And it's one of those things, those quirky things in Congress that prevented us from having some really good policy passed in this country. Again, democracy is messy. <laughs> For real. For real. You can bet we'll be quoting that. Well, let's, Rick, we'll end on an unfortunate truth, um, but one that we need to recognize. And hopefully, maybe we as citizens can start to find a way to work past, not just around, but past. Um, before we give you our, our traditional wrap-up listeners, we just want to say thank you so much to the gentlemen who have joined us for the past five weeks, and especially for this episode. I've had a great time. This has been so much fun to listen to. You are all fantastic guests. Your experience runs the gamut. You have, you have pertinent, relevant things to say that I think need to be elevated far beyond what Millennial Ag has to say. And don't you worry, we'll be promoting it. But thank you so, so, so much for what you have to offer. Thank you for what you do day in and day out. Thank you for your perspectives, for your compassion, your humanity, your logical thinking, and your recognition that 
logical thinking isn't necessarily going to get us across the finish line, but you all have innovative ideas um, and ways to approach what and where we're going to get with this. And we're going to need all of it. We're going to need all of you, all of us to get this across the finish line. So thank you very, very much for joining us today. And I think I'd add, thank you for having hard conversations and being willing to talk about stuff that a lot of people aren't willing to talk about and, and just joining us. So yes, thank you. I can't echo Catherine's um, thank you enough. Cause I think these conversations along with many others need to continue to happen. Um, and just being raw and vulnerable and, and authentic to try to figure out real solutions for agriculture. Cause it, it happens way more than just on the political spectrum. It happens on our day-to-day lives um, as we were talking about social media and, and our neighbors and our communities. And um, we hope that this is a start to something, but we know it's going to take a lot more. And we hope that um, we all can continue the conversations and maybe one day we can all do it around um, a table with a cocktail um, actually in person. Um, and we, we want to hear from you listeners. What have you thought about this episode? What are you doing in your communities? What are you doing on the political level? Um, and what's happening where you're at? We know that, um, the whole United States, as we've seen today has, has different issues, um, different, um, sectors of ag. So we want to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or you can email us at talk to us at millennialag.com. Until next week, we are Millennial Ag.